uh, Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to begin in verse 4, verse 4 of Genesis 15. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I have hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, and then I will return. Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. And with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well of all of the household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. And there was a very great company. And when they come to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a great, very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. Then when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and buried him in the cave at the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with his field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And he had buried, after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Now in verse 15 will be the primary focus of our passage between this and verse 20. Now when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us pay us back for all the evil we did to him. And so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, once again we come before your throne of grace. As your children, we cry out, Abba, Father, in the Spirit, we come before you, pleading with you to be with us this day, to open our eyes and our hearts, that we may behold wondrous things from your word, instruct us, convict us, exhort us, encourage us. We pray that in this next but God moment in the scripture, that our hearts would would see your sovereign hand over all the events of this universe, and that we would learn to trust you more, and that our faith would be built up, and that our minds would be fixed on you. Oh, Lord, we ask that you'd superintend, take control of my heart and mind, my lips, speak forth through me, in Christ's name, amen. 
We're continuing our series on but God, those two simple words, but God. And uh, there are several instances of these two words throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. And what we find in each case that these two words are used in a sentence, they are fundamentally transformative. They tell us what the scenario is like before the but and then after the but. God, God, but God, God changes everything. And in this scenario that we're looking at today, in this next but God statement, is probably one of the most powerful but God statements because it shows us and demonstrates to us not only the power of God, but the sovereignty of God, the control of God in all events in life, both good and bad. This is probably one of the biggest ones And it demonstrates to us a pivotal uh, transformation and and transition in redemptive history. It it demonstrates to us the, the very helplessness of man and the power of God. It shows that God can do what man cannot do. And it shows that even when man does evil and bad things, God has good purposes for it and uses it to bring about his will. It shows us that no matter what happens in this world, no matter how bad or horrible or, or, or hurtful or painful what we experience in our personal lives or what we see happening in the world, God is supremely sovereign over it for good. Now that's easy to say and affirm with an amen, but it's much different to express and affirm when you're in the midst of the suffering, when you're in the midst of of the pain, when you're in the midst of the sorrow. You see, when we read through this passage, it raises a question in which our passage seeks to answer, and the question is, why do bad things happen to good people? We've often heard that saying. Uh, Rabbi Kushner wrote a book on that several years ago, and I will not rehash that because I think the question is problematic in and of itself. Why do bad things happen to good people? There are two fatally flawed presuppositions in that question. The first flaw is, who is good? This idea that there are good people um, is fundamentally flawed because the Word of God tells us that no one is good, no one, not even one. Romans 3.11, we have all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, We are all deserving of God's judgment. We are deserving of God's wrath. And every day we breathe and every day that we get up and we can walk and use our legs and we have two eyes or two arms or two ears and that we're healthy and and we can go to work and we could do our job. It is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. Whatever you have, wherever your lot is, anything we have is of God's grace. And because that first presupposition is fundamentally flawed, the second presupposition is fundamentally flawed, and that is that bad things happen to good people, as if when bad things happen, it's unfair, that we deserve better, that somehow this is unjust, this is unfair, but don't you know, God, I've done this and I've done that. How could you possibly allow me to suffer such indignity, such Uh, uh, shame, such pain, such sorrow. Why, God? Why? 
I don't know about you, but I have prayed those prayers. I think every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, has asked God, why are you allowing me to go through this? Because the truth is, in life, you're going to go through something that's going to put you through the ringer. If not now, just wait. It will come. If you are a Christian and you are worth your salt as a Christian, you will be put through a ringer. It's called sanctification. It's called the testing of your faith. And, and, and it could be a health problem. It could be a personal issue. It could be uh, something with your job. It, I mean, I have seen all kinds of things happen to people over the years. I have suffered different things over the years. And, and I know that life down the road may bring more trouble. I don't expect a bed of roses. I expect bigger problems down the road. And I pray, pray that God would give me the grace to endure that. So this idea that bad things happen to good people and that it's unfair and unjust, and that somehow God is not in control, or he's not truly loving, it's one or the other, is, is a fatally flawed view. We should rather ask the question, why do bad things happen to God's people? Why do bad things happen to God's people? That's the question I really want to ask, because as we saw in our confessional statement, not everybody belongs to God. There are children of God and there are children of the devil. And so if we are children of God and we have been redeemed and adopted and justified and we're co-heirs with Christ, then we start to question, well, if we are God's children and we're going to rule the earth one day, why do we suffer in this life? That is the question. And I think if we look to Christ, we understand that if our Lord and our King was crucified and rejected by men and suffered and, was the, and, and, and bore the grief and sorrows of mankind, are we to be any different? Well, the truth of the matter is, we're looking in our Old Testament study today, and we have the portrait of another life of a man who suffered terrible injustice. In fact, in the Old Testament, Joseph is probably one of the prefigures of Christ that most typifies the ministry and the life of Jesus. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was handed over to a pagan uh, rulers and pagan nation. And he suffered the greatest indignities and shame and humiliation and degradation. And yet offered forgiveness to those who hurt him. Joseph is a type of Christ. But Joseph is a man who endured much. Altogether, 13 years of absolute suffering. I don't know how long our seasons of suffering could be, but for Joseph, it was a very long time. At 17 years old, his suffering began and would go until he was 30. He almost lived a whole lifetime of suffering compared to the life he lived up until he was 17. And to better understand it, for those who are not acquainted or initiated with the story of Joseph, I'm going to do a little backdrop to it to kind of get us an idea of the what life was like before the but God, right? Because for Joseph, there was a but God moment. And he declares the but God. What was life like for Joseph and what brought him to the point where he can say, but God? Let's go back to Genesis 37. So the first thing we want to look at is what brought Joseph? What suffering did he endure? 
Why were his brothers so terrified that he would punish them for the evil they did to him? Chapter 37, verse 1, we read as follows. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Now Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bildah and Ziplah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. And then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brother indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now we see the introduction here. Joseph was was the son of Jacob's old age. Now remember, Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. He was duped into marrying Leah by his father-in-law Laban, but Rachel was the woman, the love of his life. And of course, among them was also the uh, uh, the mistresses of Leah and and Rachel, who bore him altogether twelve sons. Joseph was the eleventh son. Benjamin would also be born to uh, Rachel, and she would die and perish in the time of giving birth. Joseph was his favorite. Now, now we see here that clearly, I think in every family there is this tendency that parents have, which can be very sinful. But he he favorited one of his sons, and as a result, it created um, a lot of tension in the home, and the brothers absolutely hated Joseph. They they were angry with him, and they were jealous of him. Um, And Joseph made matters worse and really poured salt in the wound by giving him this uh, technicolor dream coat, and it uh, it was a symbol of his of his prize, a symbol of his father's uh, uh, favoritism. And this just spurred them on even more. Uh, not only that, but Joseph would be the first to bring a bad report to the father. Uh, he, we don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us what they were doing wrong, but clearly something was wrong. They were not doing that which was expected by their father. And as a result, Joseph brought the report to Jacob and that might have infuriated them, well, not only me, but it did infuriate them even more. The toxicity of their feelings towards Joseph was so intense, it says they could not even carry the conversation with him. On top of that, his dreams. I mean, Joseph was a dreamer. And we'll learn throughout his life, he not only is a dreamer, but he's an interpreter of dreams. And God prophesies through his dreams. These dreams were coming not from him or his own imagination, but they were coming from God. The dreams were coming directly from 
God. And all he was doing was disclosing what God had revealed to him, and that further infuriated and angered um, his brothers to the point that they really did have no love for him. In fact, those dreams were the with a straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And so what happens next is they decide to take out their anger in, in a physical way. Look at verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. And so he said to them, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. And he sent him from the valley of Hebron and came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? He said, I'm seeking my brothers. He said, Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Okay, so we see these things unfolding. His brothers were to be in one place. They were not there. And just haphazardly, out of nowhere, a stranger shows up. And the stranger says, your brothers are over here. And he goes to find them. Verse 18, now they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Notice that. So great was their rage that they intended to kill him. You know, this is why Jesus said, do not be angry with your brother in heart, in your heart, right? Because the anger is the source and the root of murder. It was the, the jealousy and anger of Cain that led him to murder his brother Abel. When hatred and anger festers in the heart, unabated, unrepented of, undealt with, it metastasizes like cancer. And it becomes monstrous. You see red and the person who you feel slighted by or who you're angry with now becomes a target. You want to kill that person. And maybe you don't have within you the, the ability to carry out the act of murder, but you would love to see that person dead. We must keep a check on anger. That's why the scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no place to Satan. And so at this point, they had intended to kill him. And so verse 19 tells us, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to, the father, to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. And the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? 
Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother in our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And the Midianite passer, traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. Where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his garments, put on sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. And his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He says, I shall now go down to Sheol in my, to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. There's a lot there. Well, you see the plot unfold. The brothers are squirrels. They're rascals. They're such rascals they can't even trust each other because they're all in it for their own agenda. And so here they are as one conspiring to kill him. And then Reuben hatches a side plot. His side plot is, whoa, 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 let's not kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit and let's think about this. Reuben did not have good intentions. He had his own personal agenda. His agenda is, I'm going to come back, rescue him, bring him back to my father, and my father's going to love me. Reuben was already on the outs with his father. Reuben had already disgraced his father. He's the firstborn son. He's looking to reestablish himself as the preeminent one of the family, as the head of the household. He did not care about Joseph. He was looking out to save his own skin, and he was using this as a platform to not only betray Joseph, but then to betray his other brothers simply to exalt himself. I want you to see what all that's going on here. We're looking at so many different parts moving, and, and we see the wicked and evil machinations and intentions and motives of the sinful heart. You read this story and you say, oh my goodness, these are the patriarchs? These are the 12 tribes of Israel? This is Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham? This is where we came from? This, these are our forefathers? It's a disgrace. It's chaos. It's wicked. It's, it's, it's sinful. And so are we. One wonders how the patriarchs are to survive. How do, how do they come to be a nation with all of this wickedness taking place within the family? Joseph, Joseph's life took a turn for the worse. And I want to bring it back to Joseph because he's the victim here. Joseph is betrayed. His life is taken from him in terms of what he knew, his freedom. He is sold to Ishmaelites. Eventually he's sold to Potiphar, the guard of Pharaoh's household. And the rest of Genesis tells us how his life goes. While he's in Potiphar's household, he is elevated to become the chief steward. In other words, of all the slaves, he becomes the boss of all the slaves. 
In fact, so much so that Scripture tells us that, that Potiphar trusted him with all of his household. There was not one thing he did not trust Joseph with. And as great as a position as that may be, he was still not a free man. He still was separated from his family. He was still living in a foreign land. He was still a slave. But maybe, just maybe, his life is getting on track. And with the favor of Potiphar, maybe he can get out of this jam once and for all. But what happens? Potiphar's wife seduces him. Potiphar's wife seduces him. In chapter 39, um, it tells us in verse 11, one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men were the house were there, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, and as soon as he heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled. She tried to seduce him, he ran, he fled, he would not sin against God, and she cried rape, and he was arrested and put in jail. Just when he thought his life was getting on track, guess what? Someone else derailed it. Just when it looked like things were getting better, something else comes in and messes it all up. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had this happen to me. My life is on track. Things are getting better. I feel like I'm getting ahead and like, boom, I'm derailed again. Something comes out of left field and I'm like, oh my goodness, where did this come from? And I take one step forward and 10 backwards. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like that? Have you felt like I'm, I'm making progress, but something else comes out of left field and sets me back? Now he's in prison. And he'll be in prison for two years. He went from being a slave to being a prisoner. It doesn't get better for Joseph. It seems to be getting worse. While he's in prison, he meets two other prisoners who happen to be thrown in jail. And that was the the baker and the cupbearer. And they have dreams. And their dreams are interpreted by Joseph and, and they come true. The baker winds up getting killed for treachery but the cupbearer is restored to his position in Pharaoh's court, and Joseph only hopes, he hopes that somehow that the cupbearer will remember him. But guess what happens? The cupbearer gets to Pharaoh's court, and does he remember Joseph? No, he utterly forgets him. Joseph's in prison languishing. The cupbearer forgot him. Potiphar forgot him. Brothers had forgotten him. His father has forgotten him. Who cares about Joseph anymore? You're Joseph at this point in life. It would seem utterly hopeless and desperate. I don't know about you, but if I'm Joseph, I'm thinking God has forgotten me. I have been forsaken by the Lord. I would lie if I said I haven't felt forsaken by God at times in my life. I would lie if I told you I've never felt forsaken. And I think, I think we all have felt that way at times. Lord, I'm just languishing. Where are you? It's hard to understand when you're going through it what's happening. 
Joseph had a bad day, and his bad day led to 4,745 bad days. 13 years in Egypt, but eventually things would turn around. Eventually he would be vindicated. When you get further down into the narrative, in verse chapter 41, I will not read through the whole chapter, but to summarize what happens, eventually Pharaoh has a nightmare that scares the daylights out of him. He doesn't know the meaning of it. And finally, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. He said, by the way, when I was in prison, there was an interpreter of dreams. Joseph is summoned to Pharaoh's court, and he interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, which predicts seven years of famine and seven years of plenty. And not only that, but he suggests and proposes a plan to Pharaoh to save money for those, uh, save uh, grain for those seven years of plenty, so that during the seven years of uh, famine, that the land could survive. Pharaoh, astonished by the wisdom that God had given him, promotes him right there on the spot to be the vice regent of Egypt. In other words, Pharaoh was number one in Egypt. Joseph was number two. Joseph was the number two guy, Pharaoh's right-hand man. You can't help but to see the imagery of Christ. The Father sits on the throne and all worship him. And Christ, the Lamb of God, is at the right hand of the Father who fulfills who fulfills what we are to be, the vice regents of God on earth. But where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeds. Eventually, and I'm not going to go through the whole story, Joseph's brothers are led back to Egypt because they're starving to death. And in their starvation, they said, our, us and our little ones will perish if we don't eat and we don't get some grain, it's over. And so they go to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph discovers them. And through a back and forth of, of different tricks that David, um, rather Joseph plays to, to pull on their hearts and to help them see their sin, they are brought together, they are reconciled, they are forgiven, and, and they return back with Jacob, and they come to Egypt and they dwell, and it seems like there's peace, everything seems to be good. But then Jacob dies. And you see, when Jacob died, fear came over their hearts because they said, hey, listen, they probably was peaceful with us because, because our old man was alive. He wasn't going to do anything while our old man was alive. Now that our father is dead, uh-oh, as we saw in our text in Genesis 50, he's going to punish us now. He's going to get even. And, and, and guess what? Rightfully so. If I were them, I would be worried that he would get even with me too. I would be very worried because if he did get even... He would have every justification to do so. And it's how Joseph responds to us that brings us to this final but God. Or this second but God, I should say, not the final. They were concerned that he would get angry and get even. Notice what he says to them in verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That's the first thing we notice. Am I in the place of God? Joseph had the power to kill them. He had the power to put them in prison. 
He had the power to do whatever he wanted to them. But ultimately, he recognized something. Am I in the place of God? Is it up to me to take your lives from you? In other words, he was not into the place. He was not in the place to punish his brothers. That's God's business. He had already forgiven them. They had repented. We could learn a lot from this. The next time you are offended, the next time someone hurts you, the next time someone does something horrible to you and you want vengeance and you want to hurt them and you want to get even and you want to punish that person and you want revenge, ask yourself, am I in the place of God? <coughs> Romans twelve nineteen says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Judgment is God's prerogative, not ours. Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for them. Do good to them. Those who spitefully use you, show honor to them. That that is, humanly speaking, impossible. But I'm not asking you to do this in the flesh. You can only do so through the Spirit. It's, It's divinely empowered that we love our enemies, that we pray for those who use us, and that we seek to do good to those who harm. But when we try to take things into our own hands, we're trying to play God. And when we try to play God, we get into trouble. Are we in the place of God? But secondly, and most importantly, Joseph acknowledges the sovereignty and purpose of God. Notice, Joseph doesn't say, excuse his brother, say, oh, listen, oh, shucks, guys, it's all under the carpet, it's forgotten, let bygones be bygones. He couldn't. They were genuinely acts of evil. There's no sugarcoating it. And he says to them, listen, you intended evil for me, but God intended it for good. But God intended it for good. Before, man intended it for evil. There's no getting around that. There's no sugarcoating it. They wanted to kill him, pure and simple. Their intentions, Reuben's intentions, Judah's intentions were all evil. But God, that's the good thing. But God, man intends it for you, but God intends it for good. It's the most important but God in the Bible, if you think about it. Because we live in a world full of evil. We live in a world full of wicked intentions. We live in a world full of harm and abuse and and tragedy. But God intends it for good. If we could grasp that, it almost helps us to coast through this. It, it, It empowers and enables us to accept what's going on in our lives as not as random acts of violence from from random sinners who just have a haphazard uh, way of uh, chaos in the universe, but there is an order to the universe, and God is behind that order, and that order is that God will use the evil intentions of man and even Satan to bring about his goodwill and purpose. (coughs) Joseph was able to forgive his brothers, and he was able to move on in peace because he realized God had a purpose for everything. Go back to Genesis 45, verses 5 through 8. 
And that's exactly when he first revealed himself to his brothers is how he explains it to them. He says, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, it was God who sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth to keep you alive for many survivors. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God sent me here. Let's go back in time for a moment to see the sovereign purpose of God. Who sent Joseph to the fields to see what his brothers were doing? It was, it was Jacob, right? He didn't go on his own. Jacob sent him. But let's get even further. Who gave Joseph the dreams that provoked his brothers to wrath? It was God who gave him the dreams. And as he's walking, looking to Shechem, where are my brothers? Suddenly, a stranger appears. Who sent the stranger there? God. And then when he gets there and his brothers plot against him, who moves upon Reuben's heart to, to put him in the pit? It was God. And it just so happened as they're sitting there discussing, what should we do? All of a sudden, coincidentally, a Midianite traders are walking by. Was that, was that coincidence? Was that mistake? God sent them there. You see, Joseph was able to look back on his life and realize that every step of the way, it was God who was orchestrating all these events to bring him to where he was. That's the amazing thing. Wherever we are in life today, God has orchestrated all the events, both good and unpleasant, to bring you to where you are today. Then we could say, Romans 8.20, God is working all things together for the good of those who love him called according to his purpose. All things means all things pleasant and all things unpleasant. It means all things good and even the evil intentions of man against us to hurt us. God is using it for good. He is orchestrating it for good to bring about his purpose. Now, what was God's purpose for Joseph? It was pretty simple. It was to save the covenant people of God. If Jacob had not sent him to the fields and he had not been betrayed by his brothers, then he would have been living in the land of Canaan the rest of his life. If he had lived in the land of Canaan and never went to, to Egypt, he would have never been betrayed by Potiphar's wife and he never would have went to prison and he never would have met the cupbearer. And if he didn't meet the cupbearer, he would have never had a platform to speak in front of Pharaoh. And if he never spoke in front of Pharaoh, he would have never predicted the famine. And if the famine wasn't predicted and prepared for, Egypt would have not had grain and they would have perished as well. And when Jacob's sons went to look for food in Egypt, they would have found none and they would have went back to Canaan and they would have starved to death. And if they starved to death, there would be no nation of Israel. And if there was no nation of Israel, then you would not have had Moses and the Exodus. If you didn't have Moses and the Exodus, you would not have King David. If you didn't have King David, you would not have any of the prophets, any of the, the nation of Israel. You would not have the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God is sovereign over everything in your life. Every event, no matter how random or how wicked, is all planned out by God. It includes all your experiences in childhood, whether affirming or destructive. It, it means who your parents were. That was preordained by God, where you were born, your education or lack of, your vocation, where you live, who you married, who your children are, how attractive you think you are or not think you are, has all been orchestrated by God. 
He is sovereign. And all things have a purpose. Now, as I said in the beginning, Joseph is a type of Christ. And he was a victim of great evil. And he could sit there and say, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Who was the greater victim than Christ? He went about doing good to all men, healing the sick, casting out demons, preaching the good news. The Lord Jesus never committed one sin his whole life. And yet he was crucified. He was rejected by his own people, betrayed, handed over to Pilate. He was brutally beaten, whipped, placed a crown of thorns on his head, spit upon, had his beard plucked out, and was hung on a bloody Roman cross where he bled and died in agony and torture, and he bore the wrath of God the Father in our place. Both the Jews and the Gentiles conspired one of the greatest acts of evil in the history of mankind. Jesus hung on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You know why? Because like Joseph, Jesus knew that what God, what man intends for evil, but God intends it for good. Acts 2, 22 through 23 confirms this. It says, this man, Jesus, delivered over by what? The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Peter is saying the same thing that Joseph said. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And just as through Joseph, the whole nation of Israel was saved, through Christ, all men and women who call upon his name are saved and forgiven of their sins. Did the Jews kill Jesus? Yes. Was it evil? Yes. Will they be held accountable for their sin? Yes. Was it outside of God's control? Never. I want to conclude with this. Perhaps you at one time have been victimized in your life. We've all been victimized to some degree or another, some worse. I empathize with you. I feel for you. and So does God. But I want you to see beyond the human perspective. I want you to see it from God's point of view. Whatever victimization you suffered, whatever abuse, whatever suffering, look to Joseph, look to Christ. God intended it for good. It made you who you are today. You wouldn't be the person you are today if the bad things in your life didn't happen. It shaped and molded you the person you are. And you maybe wouldn't even be a Christian today if it wasn't for the bad things that happened. Maybe you would be just floundering away, living a life of revelry, drinking and laughing and eating and drinking and being merry, not even knowing that God exists. But God used the evil intentions of man because he intended it for your good and mine. And so we can rest when we look at the world the way it is today, when we look at the perplexities of of evil, when we say, God, how could you allow such evil to happen? There are things I see in the news and you, you're like, Lord, why is this happening? Why are your people suffering? 
You know, when I read the stories of, of those suffering in Nigeria, Christians who are being beheaded and, and, and their arms are cut off and being slaughtered and raped, when I hear about Christians in North Korea being imprisoned and tortured and put in gulags, and you say, Lord, why? Why are you allowing this? Man intends it for evil, but God intends it for good. God doesn't have to explain everything to us. He doesn't owe us an explanation. When we get to glory, we're going to learn forever about the wisdom, the manifold wisdom and the manifold power and the knowledge of God. And one day we'll understand completely and we'll see, wow, God was so wise. Right now we can't see it because we're, we're blinded by this world, blinded by sin. But one day everything will make place. So you know what it means? It means we have to trust him. It means faith. It means trusting in him and saying, Lord, I know you're in control. I don't understand it, but I know, I know you love me and I know you intend for good. So please help me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this word. I thank you for what it tells us about your supreme control over the